Well, it's great to be back with you again today. Listen, what an opportunity and a privilege it is for me. And I so appreciate Pastor Steve giving me this uh, spot this morning. And so today I want to be able to share with you. The Apostle uh, Paul writes this to the Church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.13. He says, if it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. I have entitled today's sermon, Call Me Crazy, But I'm Committed. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up with me today to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9. And the book of Nehemiah is a great Old Testament book. Matter of fact, if, if you ever hear a pastor talk about a vision statement and a vision and, and building a ministry or, or building into a year, many times they'll come back to the book of Nehemiah and they'll, they will outline the book of Nehemiah for you so that you understand what that, what that looks like, how that process gets built, because this is exactly what Nehemiah did. Many of you may be familiar with the book of Nehemiah, but maybe some of you not. So let me kind of give you a 30,000-foot view of what's going on here, if I can. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes in Persia, yet he remained very interested in what was going on in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, the book starts out that his brother and some men from Judah, they come to him and they begin to talk to him. And he asked the question, how is Jerusalem? What does it look like? What's going on? And they begin to tell him that the, the walls are ruined, that the gates have been burned. And, and so Nehemiah gets this great conviction, this great burden for the city of Jerusalem. And he goes to the king and he requests permission to go and to look. And not only does the king give him permission to do that, but he also helps him with the logistics of it. He sends some people with him. He sends some material items with him that would sustain him in the journey. And, and so we know that as Nehemiah goes and he looks, he comes back with a vision to rebuild the walls. He gets set loose to go do that. And as he gets there in the community, he begins to plead with the, the people of Jerusalem, let's do this. Let's complete this wall. Let's build it back and, and, and make it a great work. Uh, Nehemiah is very strategic in what he does. He takes the men, the fathers of the families, and he puts them on a certain section of the wall. And then he takes their families and places them near them. Because as they were building this wall, they were still uh, this threat of being invaded. So they would have a trial in one hand and a sword in the other. And so if you ever want to get something accomplished, I guess per Nehemiah, you put the dad with his family. And the, the dad knows he has to complete the wall to protect the family. But during the same time, he also has to protect the family. And so we see Nehemiah begins this work. And matter of fact, God was in it. It, it says that upon completion, which only took seven months, that Ezra got together, the priest, and he took the book. In scripture, it calls it the law of Moses. And, and he began to read from it. And we can learn a lot about the book. It was, it was important then and it's important now. And you may ask why. Well, I believe that it's important for three reasons. The first one is this, uh, because without the book, Nobody comes to Christ. See, in here is the gospel. It's laid out. We see, we see it in the Old Testament prophecy. We see it in the New Testament in reality. And so without the book, no one comes to Christ. But the second reason is because the book brings about revival. When we read this and we study this and we engage with the word, what Pastor Steve tries to get us to do every day, every week, every year, then we understand that that can bring about revival in our own personal lives, but it can also bring about revival in the church body. And then the third reason is because the book about our nation will be determined by our nation's view of the book. I can remember that Joy Behart was on The View one time, and I heard a quote where she was talking about people praying. And she's like, yeah, people praying to God, that's one thing. But believing that God talks to them, well, that's just crazy. 
But that's exactly what happens when we read God's word. He he communicates with us. And then it says on the 24th day of the month that all the people came back together. And they were so convicted that as they moved through the city and as they were worshiping that for six hours they read from God's word. And for another six hours they confessed their sins and they worshiped the God who created them. And then immediately following the scripture in, in Nehemiah chapter 9 and going into 10, it says that they made a covenant with God. And so you may ask, a covenant? What, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant, in other words, is an agreement, a contract. It's a promise, a pledge, or a bond. But today, I, I want to change that word with you if I can. I want to change it with the word that in context has the same meaning. It's a, it's a synonym for the word covenant, and that is the word commitment. And some of you may say, well, Chris, why would you change the word from covenant to commitment? Because, see, here's the truth. If I talk to you about the word covenant, you're going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, I know what a covenant is. And some of you, when we talk about a covenant, may amen that. Matter of fact, a couple of you may do that. But when you change the word to commitment, it carries a little more weight with it than covenant. See, the truth is some people will start to squirm and they're like, well, wait a minute, I don't like that word commitment because there's a there's a chance that it may cost me too much. Matter of fact, today we're not a society that likes the word commitment very much at all. I mean, we're, we're not committed to our jobs. I can remember my grandfather worked for the same mill for years and years and years and years until that mill sold and changed hands and, and then eventually closed. I can remember hearing other people in his generation that would work jobs for 30, 40, 50 years. But today we find people who might work a job for a year, maybe two years, five years at the most, and they move on to the next one. There's not a whole lot of commitment in marriage. Uh, you look today and, and we find people in this world that have been married not just once, not just twice, but three, four, sometimes five times. And so we, we, we see there's not a lot of commitment in marriage, but there's also not a lot of commitment to sports teams. I can remember growing up in Houston, Texas, I was a big Oilers fan. And if I told you that I was a fan of Bum Phillips and Earl Campbell and Kenny the Snake Stabler, Billy White Shoes Johnson, some of you out there are going to say, yep, I know exactly how old you are. When we moved back from Texas to, to North Carolina, I was a big 49ers fan because my coach was. Uh, I like guys like Joe Montana, uh, Steve Young, uh, Jerry Rice, those guys, I, I just love watching them play. But today people will ask me, well, well, Chris, who's your favorite football team now? And here's my answer every time they ask. Tell me who's playing and I'll tell you who I like. Because, see, I, I don't have a real commitment to any team. So commitment is a, is a word that we don't see much these days. But let me give you an illustration of commitment. There was a guy in Florida who had an exotic parrot. You know, the kind that you might put on your shoulder or put out on a stand and the parrot would just talk all the time. And this parrot did just that. He could talk really well. But the problem is his talking was cuss words. He could curse for five minutes and never repeat himself. And for the guy who owned him, this was extremely embarrassing. Friends would come over. This bird would be just raging with his words and very loud. And so one day the guy grabbed the bird by the throat and he said, I need you to stop cussing. The bird just got mad and he, he ripped off a few more words and got louder and more intense in his conversation. So the man so aggravated, he took the bird and he threw it in the cabinet, but the bird only began to scratch and claw at the doors. And he got louder and louder and used words that probably you and I have never even heard, much less used ourselves. The man so frustrated at the end of his rope, he grabbed the bird out of the cabinet and he slung him in the freezer. 
He slung him in the freezer, and when he did, he could hear the bird kind of scratching and making some noise. And after what seemed like a couple minutes, he said it went quiet. He got to thinking that maybe he had killed the bird, so he, he waited a couple more minutes, and he slowly opened the freezer thinking the bird was dead. But sure enough, the bird was still alive. He reached in, he grabbed the bird out, and as he grabbed the bird out, the parrot jumped back up on the little stand beside where they were working at, and the parrot made a commitment and apologized. He said, I'll, I'll never cuss anymore. The man was super excited about it. He didn't know how long it would last, but he began to continue working. And the parrot said nothing. The, the parrot was not cussing anymore, was not loud and obnoxious. After a couple of minutes of the guy working, the, the parrot looked at the guy and said, can I ask you a question? And the guy kind of looked at the parrot and he's like, sure, anything. And the parrot looked him dead in his eyes. And he said, what did the chicken do? <laughs> See, that's real commitment, isn't it? So many people just like that are, are, are not willing to commit unless there's a real benefit. The parrot was willing to commit because there was a real benefit. It was probably his life. I can remember about 10 or 12 years ago, I, I was, it was right at Easter. We were just coming out of our Easter drama. And so in the sanctuary, which was our um, uh, family life center, we had a, a stage set up with a cross behind it. And that cross was, it was a cedar plank made cross. And out on the ends of where the hands were, um, there was just blood stains from the number of years where we had done it. Of course, it was fake blood. But I can remember going to the students about four weeks before Easter. And I said, I tell you what, I'll make a commitment. There's a hundred of you in here. And if each of you will bring a friend, then I'll get tased. No, I, I, you didn't hear me wrong. <laughs> I said I would get tased. Man, the kids started talking about it. They're like, so all we got to do is bring one friend to peace. I said, yes, there has to be 200 people in that room. And if there are, I'll get tased. For a couple of weeks, they were going to school. They were inviting friends. Matter of fact, friends were coming a couple Wednesday nights before we even got to that Easter Wednesday night. And I can remember walking into the sanctuary with a good idea that they were probably going to have 100 friends there. And so that I was going to get tased that night. We had already set it up. We had some, some men that had access to uh, the equipment from a, from a training standpoint. Um, I did not go to the doctor to make sure that I was healthy enough to be tased. And I did it without the consent of my wife. But I can remember walking into that, uh, the gym or the Family Life Center, and I walked into where that stage was expecting to see 200 students. And, and I was going to tell them about the love of Christ and how Christ died on that cross and did nothing of his own to make it there the same way that I was going to be tased without having done anything. I didn't steal anything. I, I, I didn't rebel against the cops. I wasn't disobedient to them. Um, I, it was just going to happen. And as I walked in that room, there weren't 200 students. There were literally five or 600 people in that room. The students had invited friends who invited friends. The pastor heard about it, and he was more excited about me getting tased than anybody else was. And so he brought the rest of the church over to watch. And, and I can remember standing on that stage, and they counted down from five. And when they got to one, all of a sudden that trigger was pulled. And I, I know what many of you are thinking. Many of you are thinking, man, I would love to see that. Here's the problem. There were cameras and video and phones all over that gym that day. So, if you wanted to see it, you're going to get a chance to do that. Watch this video. And let's get a countdown, okay? Great, Mike. Mike, you can't get a photo of that. Have you ever close to him, Bill? Make sure you hear him. And don't hit, don't hit Larry now, okay? Because this is not about taking somebody else's shot now, okay? All right, let's get a countdown.
That's commitment, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. I got to be the craziest guy you ever know. And here's what I will commit to you today. I will never do that again. But see, there was a there was commitment because there was a reason behind it. There was there was some real benefit in me committing to getting tased that day. And that was about students coming to know Christ. And so I, I want to talk to you from Nehemiah chapter nine today. If we're crazy, then let's be committed. In Nehemiah chapter nine, and we, we see that um, they make the commitment. And the question becomes, why even the make the commitment? In Nehemiah chapter nine, verse thirty-eight, the first four words are this: "Because of all of this, because of all of this, on the twenty-fourth day of the seventh month, the people of Jerusalem had a real come to Jesus moment, if you will." They saw the walls up, they saw the gates repaired, and they looked around and they could remember what it looked like before. Seven months earlier, everything was laid in ruins. Their families were under attack, their city was under attack, there was no security around there. But as they looked around and saw that all had been accomplished in seven months, they were willing to make a commitment. They were willing to commit and say, God is good. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and following, it says this, Peter opening his mouth said, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism in every nation. He accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then it says in verse 39, and we apostles are witness of all that he did through Judea and and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witness. We were there who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and, yes, the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And we, just like them, have a good reason to commit. See, here's the truth. I remember where I was to where I am. When I think about it today, I I, I remember the sin in my life. I remembered the struggles in my life. And see, the truth is I I haven't arrived yet. But what about you? Do do you remember where you were yesterday, the day before, 10 years ago, to where you are now? Can you see where you're going with God? See, God is good. He has been to me and he will be to you if he hasn't already. So that's why we commit. We commit Because of this, the hymn says it this way, Jesus paid it all and to all I owe. Sin had washed a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Perhaps you don't like the the old hymns and you like the new contemporary. So it's said this way in a particular song. I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers only you provide. Because you know just what we need before we say a word. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And then the next part of that says, and I am loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. See, there there was a definite reason for the commitment. But the second thing we see today is the commitment characters. 
the first of these commitment characters are the leaders. We see that in in Nehemiah chapter 4. It says that uh, the leaders stood up on the Levites' platform. See, these leaders got together, and it wasn't just a Nehemiah-only thing. The leadership came along beside him, and on this day, this 24th day, as they stood up on this Levite's platform, it says that they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. See, some of you are leaders in this body. You, you do things, and, and you've been called out, and, and people see that leadership quality in you, but yet you've to, yet to surrender to it for the kingdom. And then sometimes our leaders, we, we forget what our role is, don't we? I mean, Jesus was quick to teach about this in Mark chapter 10 and then again in John chapter 13. Listen to what it says. It says, and Jesus called them, called to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in John 13, it says, And when he had washed their feet and put his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then there are leaders of you, just like in Nehemiah, that have crawled up on that platform. You're teaching life groups in this church. You're you're teaching small group Bible studies. You're leading D groups. You're serving as a deacon. You're investing into other people's lives. And so you truly are taking this leadership commitment to the next level. But the second group of people that we see in this story today is everybody else. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, we see that on the second day, it says this, the heads of the father's households of all the people gathered. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, it says, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28, it says, now the rest of the people, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those, this is the body of Christ. That's the rest of the people. And they were willing to be there to be a part of this commitment. See, no no one there, no, none of these people that gathered together in Nehemiah to make this commitment considered it to be above their pay grade. They came together because they all needed each other. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You know what we do, though? We pick and choose those times when we want to come together. We pick and choose those times of how long we want to stay and with who we want to stay and which body we want to stay. One of the most encouraging things that I get to do on Sunday morning here at First Baptist is I get to go down front during the decision time. And as I go down there, I'm just standing in awe because I get to see people come to the front. I get to see people sit in their seats and, and I get to see what God is doing in and through their lives. And Most of the time, there's no words exchanged between myself and the people that I see. I can only merely speculate on the emotion that I see on their face. There are people who come to the front. They come to respond and to pray. And sometimes they ask me to pray with them. And that is just one of the greatest um, privileges in my life. But there are other times when they say nothing to me, yet I still pray for them 
or I still pray with them, even when they don't know that I'm doing that. But then there are some people on the flip side of that, that it seems like every week on the back third of the church, a family here, an individual there, a couple here will pop up and you see them glance at the watch and they make their way out the back door at the start of the invitation. Maybe because it's a convenient time to stand up. The pastor's no longer preaching, so he's not going to call you out. Maybe it's because the message is too difficult or the commitment is getting too great. Now, I mean no disrespect to those of you that are maybe an essential, an essential employee working somewhere. Maybe you're in the medical profession. Maybe you're a first responder and you make time for church that morning. And now all of a sudden you've squeezed it to the last minute and you have to get to work. I pray that God blesses you and your faithfulness for coming. But there are some that it's just a good moment to exit. So the second question or the third point this, today becomes the details and the commitment. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, it says that there should be a commitment to sanctification. It says that we should be set apart. Matter of fact, in, in these two chapters, as the people are gathering together, it says they separated themselves from those that did not believe. This sanctification is a, is a, sounds like a very lengthy word, but all it means is to be set apart. And so what does that mean for you and I today? It means this, and, and Jesus said it, that we are to be salt and light. Now, I will tell you this about salt. We should be so salty that it preserves the gospel in our life. We should be so salty that when we take the gospel in, that that salt preserves that gospel. It doesn't allow it to rot, doesn't allow it to go away. But the, it, the salt should also add flavor to the gospel. The gospel itself is as sweet as it can be, but the saltiness in us that God asks us to be salty should add flavor to that gospel. When it comes out, man, it should be so tasty. Like when you take a bite of a, a nice French fry and it's got just the right amount of salt on it, you're thinking, man, that has got to be the best French fry I've ever had. Salt should add flavor to that. But the third thing that salt should do is it should make other people thirst for the gospel. I mean, think about it. If I if I gave you a big old bag of potato chips, uh, maybe a, a, a bag of regular Lay's, they seem to have a little more salt on them than some of the other ones. And I gave you that bag and I said, go ahead, go ahead and eat half the bag of chips. Before you finish that bag, you'd be thirsty for something to drink, maybe a, a sweet tea, a, a nice ice cold water. We should be so salty that the gospel inside of us makes people thirsty and want some of that. But we should also be light. We should be a, a reflection of Christ in everything that we do. We, we should be casting out the gospel as it reflects out of us back to other people. People should look at us and say, man, their commitment is so great. There is something different about them. So there was a commitment to sanctification, to be set apart, to look different than the world. But the second thing that we see, and it comes from verse 31, was there is a commitment to the Sabbath. It said the Jewish people made this commitment. They took it serious. I mean, they were going to rest on the seventh day. It didn't matter what because they wanted to spend time with the Father. See, they didn't want to be in his proximity. They wanted to be in his presence. I think about that today and in the observing of the Sabbath. And I think about how many times that I will come to church on a Sunday and leave. And I like to eat. And we'll go to a restaurant, and then in that restaurant, somebody's having to work to serve me food. Or somebody's having to work to clean up the mess that I created at the table. But here, there was a commitment to the Sabbath. There was a commitment that they were going to spend time with the Father. And so I want to challenge you that 
you should make that commitment. We should make that commitment together that we're going to find one day to rest and spend time in the presence of the Father. So the people of Jerusalem were making a more than just a covenant. They were making a commitment with a cause. And so I ask you today as you watch this video, are you making that kind of commitment today? Are you making it a commitment to Christ and the gospel? Listen, if you don't know him, then everything that I've talked about today might not make sense to you. And so maybe the very first thing you have to do is make a commitment to Christ and to the gospel. To know that he came and he lived and he died for you. Because of the sin in my life and your life, he became that bridge back to the Father. And all you have to do was believe that he did that and make him Lord of your life. Maybe today you're willing to make a commitment to becoming more like him and less like you. Listen, that's, that's what being a disciple is about. That's the difference between being a convert and a disciple. Maybe today you want to make a commitment to his word, to picking this up and reading it more. Maybe today you want to make a commitment to his will. Whatever God wants and desires in your life, you're willing to commit to doing just that. Or maybe today you're willing to commit to his way. To how God tells you to do this or how God tells you to respond to people. How God tells you to love other people. How God wants you to help other people. Maybe today you're willing to make a commitment to his way. See, the truth is, I, I don't know what kind of commitment you want to make today. Only you do. But I am praying and I'm going to pray that we make a commitment because we know that it has real results. Father God, we love you and thank you for the day. Thank you for this message from the book of Nehemiah. And God, if we're going to be crazy, then we just need to be committed. We need to be committed to you. We need to be committed to the things that you called us to do. And so God, I pray that as those that watch this video think about the commitment that you're calling them to today. God, I pray that without hesitation or reservation, that they would make that commitment. And then God, as they do that, I pray that they would go and tell others, God, that it would be so evident in their lives. God, for those that are faithful followers today, thank you for what you're doing in and through their lives. And God, I pray that as this kingdom is being built, God, I pray that many would come to know you and not just know you, but be changed by you and become more like you and less like us. And God, in that, we'll be quick to give you all the honor and all the praise and all the glory because you and you alone truly are an awesome God. Lord, we love you and say these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.